All right, we are there. Hi, am I on? Uh, I want to call a little audible here, Andy. Um, if we could keep those microphones ready. I want to start my sermon with a little bit of a, of a testimony, or not testimony, a little challenge. Um, for those who can read well, maybe kids or maybe adults if they're daring enough. But I um, just want to say, give my opportunity to give a, a Thanksgiving testimony. Uh, I know that when those testimonies are given, I try not to say anything because I have a, a loud voice in the pulpit and can talk a lot, anything I want to say. I want to, that's a time for you. And so I wanted to give that as an opportunity for you is what I, I, I try to do. But I would say that there are several things that really stand out uh, in my mind of thankfulness. First of all, Darren, thanks you. You just honored me by talking about my 20 years here. <clears throat> and it's been a joy, <clears throat> but I would say that one of the things that are, I'm really joyful about now is the group of elders that God has brought forth. Uh, Brian and Ryan and Darren, you guys serve faithfully and humbly and make my service a joy. And so we just spent uh, hours, literally hours yesterday, speaking about COVID and the mitigations and what to do as a church and balancing the different views of the one side to the other side and how we can continue forward as a church and what it looks like and you know so even from that comes the um you know just tonight just thinking about some people particularly at home if you're at home watching providing sunday night just an opportunity to speak with others so we're just going to have an online fellowship at six from six o'clock to seven we'll see how that goes with zoom um just even encourage you also as well if you want to just use that to get to other people now in this time of uh of covid when just just the um uh, the disease is, is spreading more and more um, so thank you. I think I'm okay. Thank you. <laughs> you clean it. Thank you. Um, so just to say I'm thankful for the elders that God has, has given to us here. Uh, just also just a, a little subtle thing of thanksgiving. I'm just thankful for our children. Um, one of the things I'm super thankful about, we, we've always prayed and always had in our mind that uh, um, just we, we delight, we want our children to enjoy life and enjoy each other. And we read a book early on in our parenting called Brothers and Sisters, Best Friends. And we've read it through twice, and we've attempted a third time, kind of with each generation of the kids they go through. It never quite worked that third time, but maybe we'll pick it up again. Um, but just speaks about how our aim is to have our brothers and sisters best friends, and uh, just that they would enjoy their time together. And uh, just, I'm thankful. Um, it's often that Yvonne and I go to bed at night, and David and Stephanie are giggling and just kind of frolicking and having fun, and it's it's it's... <laughs> It's enjoyable for us to hear that. On Instagram yesterday, Hannah is with uh, Krissa, and just the joy and the fun that they uh, they have is really, really a joy to our hearts. Because <laughs> he's in the generation before, but just the idea, and we are thankful for that, um, and it's God's grace to us. And, and you all have been a part of that. I just think about growing up as a pastor's kid in a church and the testimony. Jake, you are one of those. Uh, the testimony is hard. Um, but I think there's a, been an advantage of planning a church, sending a trajectory of what it, what it means to be a pastor's kid. It means like you're like everybody else. And you haven't held our children to some unreasonable standard. Um, and so for that, I, I am, I'm thankful. Um, just also, just thinking about those of you online, if you'd like to type out something you're thankful for in the comments, that would be a, a great thing to encourage us all. And um, so here, here's, what, here's what I want to do. I want to um, begin my, my message this morning by um, 
by just talking about some tongue twisters. How many kids like tongue twisters? Yes? Okay, who wants to try a tongue twister? You've got to be able to read. Okay, Thatcher. Thatcher's going, ooh, 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 ooh. Can we get a microphone to Thatcher, and then I'll give you a tongue twister to try to say here up front. Okay, we're going to see how good Thatcher is. All right, here, here you go, Thatcher. Sally sells seashells by the seashore. Again, again. Sally sells seashores by the... <laughs> Sally sells seashells by the seashore. All right, good. All right, who wants to give another try? Okay, I got Austin. Go ahead, Austin. Maybe we can uh, get a microphone to Austin would be, would be really nice. <clears throat> they get progressively harder. All right, here, here you go. You ready? Here you go. How can I calm, cram, and clean <laughs> a clean cream can? How can I clean, cram, in a clean cream can? <laughs> All right, we got, we got another one, right? I got to have a good reader. So, Jack, I'm a little nervous of you. Maybe, maybe, and a, okay, Kent, go ahead, maybe up here. Here you go, Kent. Have at it. If Stu choose shoes, Stu should Stu choo, choose to choose the choose. <laughs> if Stu if Stu choose shoes, should Stu choose to choose he choose. <laughs> all right, all right. That was very good. Okay, and we got one more, which is a little on the easy side. Michael, uh, thanks for volunteering, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have uh, one more. This one's a little longer, but this one it. Oh, oh, oh! We'll go, Michael. We'll go, Michael. This one is uh, just, I think, a little bit easier, but it's pertinent to my message this morning. If you see what I mean. Okay, go ahead, Michael. Pickle, pickled peppers. A peck of pickled peppers. Peter Piper picked. If Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. Where the peck of pickled peppers Peter Piper picked. Good, good. Nice job. Um, so that's because my message this morning is entitled Peter Preaching in the Portico. So wait till you see my points. I think every time you see one of my points, you might, you might um, laugh out loud or whatever. It's, I was trying to think of another P word, pontificate. You will, you will like that. I, I could have made it worse. I could have said... Peter passionately preaching the power of the prophet in the portico to praying people. I could have entitled it that, but we're just going to stay with Peter preaching in the portico. Um, so last week, we looked at Acts chapter 3, and you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. Um, and we, we, we looked last week at the first half of the chapter. Uh, Acts chapter 3 really breaks into two parts. The first part is uh, when Peter heals a lame beggar, which I called the miracle. And the second part is when Peter preaches to those in the temple, which I called the message. And, and last week, we spent a lot of time looking at the miracle and only a little bit of time looking at the message. And what I want to do this week is sort of reverse that and look a little bit at the miracle and look a lot at the message, right? Just... Uh, uh, spending enough time in the miracle just to understand the context for the message, but 
predominantly focusing upon the message. So let's go here in Acts chapter 3. Verse 1 begins with Peter and John heading up to the temple uh, to pray about the ninth hour, 3 o'clock in the afternoon when everyone else will be praying. And in verse 2, we read that they address the, that they approach the beautiful gate. And they uh, approach this man who's been lame from his, uh, from, from his birth. He's never walked and he is begging and he had been placed there by his friends to beg. It's the only way for him to get money in these days. And uh, in verses 3 through 5, we see him asking Peter and John for some money and, and some eye contact is made and he's anticipating that he's going to receive money from Peter. And then come those famous words in verse 6. I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And so just picture that scene there, that here's this man, he's never been, never been able to walk before, and Peter reaches down and says, I don't have gold or silver, but in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And not only did he walk, but what else did he do, you remember? He went jumping about. And uh, for those of you here last week or watched online, uh, if you missed it, you missed the action um, because I tried to give you a little feel of what this man was actually doing. And, and I went airborne. Um, this is from the video from last week. And um, I think I still got it. I think I still got my hops at age 53. And, and I don't think any of you will, will ever forget uh, just that time uh, in which, which we were there. Um, but that's the whole idea. I, I did that just so you remember, and I think some of you kids are going to be old, and you're going to have family worship with your family, and you say, okay, we're reading through Acts, and you get to chapter 3, and you can be able to tell your kids, I remember when I was a little boy or a little girl, and uh, the pastor, and uh, he's old and gone now, and, but he, 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 like, he like jumped in the air, and man, for a 53-year-old, did he jump high. And um, so that's what this beggar did, and I think this, this beggar was just leaping, and if he had a basketball, and there's basketball invented in that day, if James Naismith would have lived in that day, he would have been able to dunk. Uh, such was the excitement, and um, this is the sort of thing we don't see nowadays, and uh, we don't have the ability to do that. It's not to doubt the power of God, that could happen, but uh, I've never seen this, never seen anything like this happen. we but it would be a great thing to see, right? To put orthopedic surgeons out, out of work. And Brian, you might, you, you might not have a job if there were people who had this power to do that because he works at the orthopedic place. Uh, to free up hospital beds for those with COVID. Just walk through and just clear that all out. And to see others join in the chorus of praise to our God. And you can imagine the, the commotion that's brought. And the commotion comes in verse 10 really, that, that they, they recognized him who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple because every time they went up to the temple, they, they saw this man and, uh, and, and they were filled, as it says in verse 10, with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And we read in verse 11 that while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran together with them at, at the portico called Solomon. So just even picture this scene. Here's got this healed man, and he's grasping onto Peter and John. I don't know, I don't know how, but maybe onto the, their leg or something. A little bit like a child who's in this big crowd of people and doesn't want to lose his parents. And so grasp the hand of mom or dad, and mom or dad are grasping their hands. So just not let go. And the, he, this beggar just did not want to let go of, of Peter and John. They were utterly astonished. 
and Peter begins to preach in verse 12. He, he preached in a place called Solomon's Portico. Um, now, Solomon's Portico was a, was a place in the temple, probably around the edge. The temple proper there is in the middle where the sacrifices were, where the, the Holy of Holies was, and um, where, where the, the table of showbread were there, and the lampstand, and the altar. Um, but beyond that was the, the Holy of Holies. But that was a building of itself. But then you had the Temple Mount area which was surrounded by colonnades, and there was this, these columns, these high columns, which was Solomon's portico. We don't know the exact location um, because the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, and, which means that that, that temple right there, we don't, people don't even know where that temple is because every stone uh, was toppled over, just as Jesus said. There's no way, no one has ever found any sort of foundation stones of where that little building is. Though today, if you go to Jerusalem, that whole temple mount is still there, but there's some debate about where Solomon's portico is, or some have called it Solomon's porch. Josephus, historian at that time, spoke about how Solomon especially built up the east side of the Temple Mount so that all could be flat there. And so people say that it's probably on the east side of the temple. It's often referred to as Solomon's porch. It's, it's large enough for lots of people to gather together. It's a, away from the sacrificing activity. It's a, it's a great place, really, to preach a sermon. And that's exactly what, what Peter did in uh, Solomon's portico. Peter preaching in the portico is my message this morning. And here is his sermon, beginning of verse 12. Peter saw it. He addressed the people. And this is what he said. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our power or piety we have made him walk? And, and, and just picture, right, he's, he's saying this, he's got this guy right here, he's got all these crowds around. He says, it's not about us. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murder to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that as Christ should suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. There's the sermon preached to these people in the portico. And last week I mentioned how this sermon is similar to the sermon preached on the day of Pentecost, which is in chapter 2. And, and there are similarities, and yet they are, are very different. 
<clears throat> Listen to how one commentator says it. He said, Peter's sermon in Solomon's portico is in many ways similar to a sermon at Pentecost. Structurally, both move from proclamation to a call for repentance. The Pentecost sermon, however, is a finished and polished, whereas this one is comparatively rough-hewn. Thematically, both focus on the denial and vindication of Jesus of Nazareth, but the portico sermon expresses more of a remnant theology than the one at Pentecost. It shows more of a generous attitude towards Israel, coupled with a greater stress on the nation's responsibility for the Messiah's death than does the Pentecost sermon, and makes it explicit of the necessity of receiving God's grace by faith. So that long quote, just to say this, is that uh, there are similarities between these sermons thematically, but there's vast differences. And uh, the difference I see mostly is the Sermon of Pentecost was finely organized. I mean, Peter goes from, from the tongues to Joel 2, to preaching about Jesus, incorporating his Psalm 16, and then Psalm 110, and then the final exhortation at the end. It's really systematic. This one, however, is much more jumbled. He begins a theme and then speaks of it later and kind of pulls it around, maybe much more Eastern. Um, the, the Sermon of Pentecost is maybe more Western to our Western minds, logical and 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 just very clearly laid out, whereas this one here is, is much more Eastern and just flows in, in many different ways. And so I, I threatened um, not to have an outline this week, but with Peter preaching in the portico, I thought I'd have a great outline. My first point is the pivot, okay, the pivot. I talked about this quite a bit last week and uh, how Peter turned the conversation of the miracle into a message, just like he did on the day of Pentecost with the tongues phenomenon. There, there was a, the tongues going on, and uh, then as soon as he talked about the tongues, then he, he transitioned. He talked about Jesus and eventually said in Acts 2, verse 30, 33, that Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. That, that this all has happened, but let me tell you about Jesus, and Jesus is the one who caused that to happen. Right? In other words, the, the, the tongues phenomenon is because Christ has exalted the right hand of God and the Holy Spirit then has been given to us. And that transition I call like a pivot, uh, a little bit like a basketball player who's, who's you know, running and then, and then pivots, right? Makes, makes that move, makes that jog. This is a, the pivot that I really encouraged all of you to, to do. Um, and think about what Peter does here in, in, in verse 12. He assesses the crowds uh, and then what this miracle brought. And so Peter was in Solomon's portico, and this man, it seemed like he ran up to him, and there's lots of commotion, and this crowd just probably was only a a few people in the portico before he was there. And then when Solomon got there and the the man was there, I was like, the the crowd just just grew up, and and he's just thinking about, okay, so how can I take the situation in hand and, and pivot to speak about Christ? And that's exactly what he does here in verse 12. Here's the pivot. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us? as though by our power or piety we have made him walk. And he, here's, here's the pivot. He, he says, why, why are you looking at us? It wasn't the power of me. It wasn't the power of Peter. It, it wasn't the power of John. It wasn't the piety of Peter. It wasn't the piety of me. It wasn't the piety of John. It was God alone who worked the miracle. It was God's power. 
And that's what he begins speaking about in verse 13 when he says the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. It's, it's through the power of Jesus that this man was made well. In fact, he says that explicitly then in verse 16. You can kind of see him, him jumping around a little bit to speak about it. But verse 16 says that it is through faith that is through Jesus that has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. It's through the power of Jesus that this man is made well. In fact, verse 16 is more. It's through faith in Jesus that's made this man well. And uh, regarding this pivot last week, I encourage you to make the same pivot in your conversations. I made it a big point of application. And, and I just thought I'd share with you some ways I tried to pivot this week. These are not success stories, but these are attempts at what I would encourage you to attempt on a daily, weekly basis. I always have it in your mind. So I made a couple pivots this week, and um, I don't think they were so successful, but I tried. The first was on Monday, and I went and I gave blood on Monday, and uh, you know everything was, was all hooked up, and I, I got the, 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 the needle in my arm, and there's the bag, and I'm, I'm, I'm pumping like this, and, and I'm not talking with the nurse very much while you know, she's hooking me up, lest she like, get distracted and poke me in a bad place or something like that. But I'm, I'm sitting there just kind of pumping, and, and finally she's all done, and she sits down, and I'm looking at the clock to see how, how, how long it's taken, and she comments how oh, I'm about halfway through, and I'm like, okay, that, that's really good. And then she says, um, what do you plan to do the rest of the day? <laughs> Great question, right? As a pastor, here's what I, how I transitioned. I said, here's my pivot. I said, well, I'm a pastor, and I pour myself out every Sunday, and so Monday's my day of recovery. Monday's my day off, so I'm doing like day off sort of things. So with my kids, my family, projects, and the reading. I'm waiting for her to... Oh, really, Pastor? What church? You know, maybe to get into things. And you know what she said? Nothing. <laughs> my, my pivot did not go so well. But I was, I was trying, and um, that's my first attempt. Uh, my second pivot took place on Wednesday. Yvonne and I were out for a walk and happened to see a, a neighbor friend of ours. And uh, we know that he's on second shift um, but at that point, he was kind of out maybe seeing one of his kids go off driving a car. And I commented to him. I said, uh, hey, you're, you're supposed to be working right now. Um, are you taking a day off? And he explained to me how um, his aunt died. And um, so that he had a funeral yesterday. Um, but with all the family sort of in town, um, he... Uh, he's not, not like a lot of family because you only, you know, in these days you can only have fewer people for the funeral. This is before it's only 10 people. How many do you say were there, Yvonne? Like 20? I don't know. So, something like that. But few few people he talked about was there. And then he contrasted it with his, this was aunt, his uncle who passed away maybe a, a year ago or actually was killed a year ago. And he talked about the difference between the two funerals because this aunt was real involved in church. But the uncle had lived uh, a bad life. And so the difference in the funeral, he said, was pretty obvious. And so, <laughs> ding, ding, ding. So time for a pivot. Talked about how, yeah, in First Thessalonians 4, it just speaks about how those who are in Christ don't have, to, um, don't have to weep and mourn as if those who have no hope. And so it's right that there was a, a difference there between the, uh, the two funerals. There's the one, you know, there's, there's joy of an anticipation of heaven, and the other, there, there's no hope. And that's kind of where it ended. Like, we didn't speak a lot after that, but there was the attempt to pivot. 
you know, just to speak Jesus there a little bit more. Not super successful, but trying. Uh, my third attempt to pivot was Thursday evening. Uh, we had a, a couch that we were trying to give away and uh, was, was right out there with my, my little note on there. And uh, boy, I wish I could read the note. I should have had a close-up of the note. It's, I thought it was kind of funny. It says, free, my, my, my current owners are upgrading, and I feel lost and alone. I need a new home. And I said, you can call me Fred, is what I put on there. But you had to like, get really close if you're going to see it. But it sat out there for like two days. We're trying to sell it. Um, and um, we put on Facebook Marketplace and just weren't real comfortable with the people who replied with that because it was free and whatever. But after a couple of days, we picked it up and we put it in the garage. And uh, Vaughn, even, it was, you still stayed outside that whole time, I think? She was doing Christmas lights outside, had just put the couch in, and a car drove up said, hey, you had a free couch, is it still for sale? And um, she said yes, and I kind of heard some commotion, and so I went out and started talking. And so basically, they'd come back at 6 o'clock. And uh, they, they said some things about, you know, they had some, uh, sun is maybe moving up from Mount Morris, or they're moving up from Mount Morris here in the neighborhood, or something like that. And so I'm like, ding, 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 I can pivot with that, because they're coming up from Mount Morris. I know some people in Mount Morris, right, Carissa? married uh caleb from mount morris and we pray consistently here for mount morris ev free church i'm thinking mount morris small town maybe there's a church connection maybe they're moving up here even looking for a church and so they were going to come back with a pickup truck and they came back about six o'clock and so tried to engage them in conversation the idea was mount morris oh we know some people in mount morris oh you do huh how do you know that well well, they go to mount morris ev free church oh really yeah the men is uh, and um, then they came and we started to have a conversation. We talked about, oh, are you, you moving from Mount Morris? No, we've lived here for three years. Like, couldn't quite figure out what Mount Morris was. So that connection was bad. So I failed in my pivot. I feel like I, I sprained my ankle every time I, I tried to pivot. But I, I tried. And I just would encourage all of you to just have that on your mind spiritual things, to pivot with what is being said, to think through how you can pivot things to speak about Jesus. And one of the greatest illustrations I know of this is Charles Spurgeon, who was, who was lecturing to his students, and this is what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, I shall never forget the manner in which a thirsty individual once begged upon me upon Clap, Clapham Common, so someplace in London, so Spurgeon lived, uh, whatever, 150 years ago or so in London. And he said, I saw him with a very large truck in which he was carrying an extremely small parcel. And I wondered why he had not put the parcel into his pocket and left the big machine at home. And I said to him, it looks odd to see such a large truck and such a small load. And he stopped and looking me seriously in the face, he said, Yes, sir, it is a very odd thing. But do you know, I've met with an odder thing than that this very day. I've been about working and sweating this air-blessed day until now I haven't met a single gentleman that looked as if he'd give me a pint of beer until I saw you. Spurgeon then said, I considered that turn of the conversation very neatly managed And we, with a far greater subject upon our minds, ought to be equally able to introduce the topic upon which our heart is set. 
And there was an ease in this man's manner, which I envied, for I did not find it quite so simple a matter to introduce my own topic to his notice. Yet, if I had been thinking as much about how I could do him good as he had upon how to obtain a drink, I feel sure that I would have succeeded in reaching my point. If by any means we may save some, we must, like our Lord, talk at table to good purpose and on the margin of the well and by the road and on the seashore and in the house and in the field. And so it's encouraging to me that even Spurgeon himself, the prince of preachers, uh, one of the best preachers this world has ever known, failed to make his own pivot after this guy just pivoted him and he, he didn't pivot back very well. And I think the, the whole key to that is if you have in your mind I've got this great subject, and I want to do good to people and to help them. Then you'll be thinking about making your own pivots as well. So I share that just just to say I'm not so great at it. I try, and I would encourage you as well. Well, when Peter pivoted, he talked about the power. This is Peter preaching in the portico, preaches now the power of Jesus, the power of God. You see that in verse 13, as I've already mentioned. It says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant, Jesus. The significance of this reference to the, the fact that He's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob is that, is that He's the God of the promise. Because God made a promise to Abraham. And he repeated that promise to Isaac, and he repeated that promise to Jacob. And that promise comes in Genesis chapter 12 about how I'm going to bless you in, in great ways. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you this land. And, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And again, here we see Peter like, like preaching and, and worming his way uh, into things. Because at the end, in, chapter, in verse 25, he quotes this promise. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So he's, he's talking about who this God is, and I think repeating these names demonstrate that he's the God of, of promise. He, he knows he's talking to a Jewish audience. They're in the temple. They're praying. Right? That's why they would come. That's for the crowd. Like everybody there is, is gone there because it's the hour of prayer. And Peter identifies the source of this power, the source of this miracle, as it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, it's interesting also that, that this phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is comparatively rare in the Old Testament. In fact, really, there are, are two predominant times in which it appears, and both during the predominant times of miracles in the Old Testament. Right? When you think about the Bible, you think about miracles, there are really only just three phases. When they happen, it happened a lot during the days of Moses, and then there weren't miracles for a long time. Then it happened during the days of Elijah and Elisha, and then there weren't miracles for a long time. And then it happened during the days of Jesus and the apostles, and then there haven't been a lot of miracles in a long time. So don't think that just this stream of miracles is, is um, normative in this world. It's not. But when God appeared to Moses, I think perhaps his promise and miracle power God, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Appearing that to Moses. And to uh, Elijah, Elijah uh, just pleads this. When he's on, the Mount, on Mount Carmel battling with the prophets of Baal, when he pleads to the Lord, he calls him by these names. He says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. So I think it's because he's pleading to this promise-keeping God who's got the power to bring fire down from heaven right upon that sacrifice which had been drenched in water. 
And so the fact that Peter here is explaining that he's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's the God of the patriarchs. He's the God of the promise. He's the God of of power. He's the one who gets the credit for giving this man ability to walk. But ultimately, it is through the name of Jesus. If you look at verse 16, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, now, verse 16 is this convoluted sentence. It's like almost as if Peter starts and then clarifies himself. And he, he begins again, and then he starts, and he parentheses, explains some things. And it, it's jumbled, but it's, it's clear. It's not difficult. The power comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It's faith in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, it, it's not this name of Jesus. It's not the, the fact that they're just saying, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. Not some mantra of things, but it's, it's that the name is representative of the person and the name is representative of the power then that comes. That's what, that's why Jesus told us to pray in his name, to pray in the authority of Jesus, pray in the power of Jesus to know and, and trust in those ways. And that's why Peter, in fact, chapter three, verse six, invoked the name in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I command you to rise up and walk. It's only the name under heaven. It's the only name under heaven that can heal. It's the only name under heaven that can save. In fact, uh, when we get to chapter 4, we're going to see in, in verse 12 about Peter just affirming this fact to the, the Jewish council. He's saying it's all, it's all about the name of Jesus. Not only give the man power to raise him up, but Jesus is the only name by which he must be saved. Chapter 4, verse 12. And there's salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. That's the name of Jesus is the only name in heaven that's been given to us by which we must be saved. That he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And the power of the miracle came through Jesus Christ. And the question here when he brings up faith is whose faith is this because it could be the faith of the beggar or it could be the faith of of peter it's interesting here that uh that um we don't hear anything about the beggar's faith i mean we would we would think that people often think that right i'm i'm sick and uh, i need healing and so what do you do right Uh, people often say well you just got to believe you got to believe that you're going to be healed and it's all about my faith to make sure that that i get healed okay um, and in fact, even in Pentecostal charismatic circles, a lot of times there's a big emphasis. Oh, you don't have faith strong enough because you're not being healed. Oh, your faith is bad. But what's interesting here, it, it, this blind beggar, we don't know anything about his faith per se. It, it, in fact, he was so different than the blind beggar in Jesus' day. Remember, he was, uh, he was on the road and Jesus was passing by. And here's a blind beggar just asking for alms. And here's a commotion. He said, who's, who's, who's passing by? Jesus of Nazareth. He's like, oh, that's the guy who's been healing people all over the place. So here's this blind beggar on the side of the road in Jesus' day crying out, Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he's crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And, and they're saying, shh, don't bother the master. Shh. And it caused him to shout all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus came over. So he had clear faith in the one who was able to power to give him sight, and he gave him sight. But not so this blind man. When Peter came walking by, he wasn't asking for healing. He was asking for money. And he was expecting some money. That's verse 5. 
expecting to re- receive money from them. He wasn't expecting to be healed at all. His faith wasn't in his healing. So you say, whose faith was it? And it's certainly Peter's faith. Peter believed in the power of Jesus Christ flowing through him could make this man walk. So anyone who condemns someone else for not having enough faith because they're, they're sick ought to look back upon himself and say that maybe he doesn't have the faith to heal the person who is uh, in distress. You know, it reminds me of the story of, uh, that, that's told often about um, uh, Thomas Aquinas, <clears throat> who's um, one of the greatest Roman Catholic theologians that's ever lived. He lived in the 12th century uh, 13th century, maybe like 1200s, and he was in Rome visiting with uh, Pope Innocent. I think it was Pope Innocent the fifth or fourth or something. And and the Pope is showing Aquinas all the riches and the treasures of all that they had the church. And, and the Pope said to Aquinas, said, "You know what? No longer does the church have to say silver and gold have I none." And Aquinas then replied, "And no longer can the church say in the name of Jesus Christ I command you to walk." Just kind of the, the contrast there, just kind of saying in the midst of all the wealth, you've lost the faith. And uh, so likewise, Peter here, it's his faith. He believed the power of Christ was working through him and walk he did. The evidence here was irrefutable. There he was, right at his, his feet. He's clinging to him. But there was, my next point, the problem. He pivoted to talk about Jesus. He talked about the power of Jesus, but there was the problem. And, and the problem is the Jews had already rejected the source of the power of the miracle. They'd rejected Jesus. We see that in verses 13 through 15. He says this, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom, and here he is, here's the problem, your problem is that you delivered Him over and denied Him in the presence of Pilate when He had decided to release Him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. See, the Jews didn't merely ignore Jesus. They didn't merely um, tolerate Jesus. They didn't just bear up under, under his uh, strangeness of who he was. No, they rejected him. As verse 13 says, they delivered him over to Pilate. As verse 14 says, they denied their Messiah. As, uh, as uh, I think it's verse 15, they, they said they asked for a murderer instead of the Messiah. And they killed the author of life. And this takes us back to that scene. I, remember, I, I trust you remember that scene. It's helpful for us to relive that a little bit. It was Passover, and many of the Jews had gathered up to Jerusalem for the, for the festival. They traveled far and wide, and during this festival, Judas had had enough with Jesus. And uh, Judas then went to the chief priests and promised to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And there in the Garden of Gethsemane, when when Jesus was praying, knowing that his hour had come, saw Judas walk right up there with the big crowds with swords and clubs. He betrayed Jesus. And so Jesus was in custody. And uh, with the religious elite, it was finally their time to see this menace finally destroyed. And they held this mock trial condemning him of blasphemy, deserving of death. But the Jews in those days had no authority to put someone to death. And so they brought Jesus to the one who had the power of execution, that is Pontius Pilate. And they brought Jesus there. And, and when Jesus came to Pontius Pilate, he, he took him into his own quarters and, and began to question Jesus and say, like, like who are you and, and, and what's going on? As he, as he questioned him, Jesus was remarkably silent. 
relatively silent. Just said a few things, but not a lot. And then he saw the chief priests and the, and the Pharisees, like just accusing him and the crowds, just accusing him. And Peter was not, and Jesus was not fighting back at all and, and really caused Pilate to be amazed at this thing. Jesus wasn't trying to defend himself against these accusations. The accusations were like groundless. And uh, Pilate, when he got all out, he said, you know what? This man hasn't done anything. He is innocent. And so he, he planned to release them. He had his plan. He says, oh, it's the Passover. And one of the things that they always did during the Passover, the governor would always release for them a criminal as a sign of goodwill from the Romans to the Jews. They would release a criminal, give him to the crowds. And so here, you release someone. I thought, oh, here's my out. I'll just release Jesus to them um, because that, that, will, that will work. And uh, so when he tried to release Jesus, they said, no, we don't want Jesus. And uh, they wanted Barabbas instead. Now, Barabbas was that notorious prisoner who was in prison for the insurrection started in the city. And he's for murders. Here's his murderer. This insurrectionist against Rome. And they had a choice between Peter, um, between Jesus and Barabbas. And they wanted Barabbas. And they demanded Jesus be crucified. And then Pilate, even when they demanded Jesus be crucified, Pilate said to them, why? What is what has Jesus done? And uh, they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. And Pilate, Pilate saw he was getting nowhere. This riot was, was, was breaking out. And so he, he gave in, preferring peace over justice. Um, but not without wanting to make his position clear. Because what he did, he, he took this basin of water. He said out in front of the people. He said it there. He ceremoniously washed his hands in front of the people. Said, I am innocent of this man's blood. Just to let you know, I believe this man is innocent. You're requesting this. And just to satisfy you, I am going to do that. And the Jews in the crowd that day said, his blood be upon us and on our children. And that's exactly the problem, that his blood was upon them. They were stating their own problem. They were guilty of rejecting Jesus, the very one who had the power to heal this lame man. Look again at verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Pilate's declaration of his innocence was not enough to convince you. Verse 13, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you. You chose Barabbas, the insurrectionist, over Jesus. Verse 15, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. You bit the hand that fed you. And now you have a problem. Now you're in trouble. There's blood upon your soul. Peter then said, to this we are witnesses. The the theme of the book of Acts. We're just witnessing what we have seen and heard. He's just telling them the story of everything they've seen and heard about denying the Holy and Righteous One, and delivering him over to Pilate and choosing a murder in his place and killing the author of life. That you've done all these things. You are guilty. There is the, the problems you have. But with any good preaching, there is hope. And this point I'm calling the plea. The plea comes in verses 17 through 21 where Peter puts forth the call to repentance. He says, And now, brothers... I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets is Christ should suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. 
And that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And, and again, we, we see in this sermon, like the sermon at Pentecost, a very unique, uh, a unique place in that uh, the very listeners in the crowd were the very ones who were saying, crucify him, crucify him. And the very ones who had, who had done these things actually delivered him over and, and actually killed him. And actually denied him in a way that's, that's different than where, where we are today. It's a, it's a different sort of application. But to these, these very ones, Peter then cuts him some slack. It's how he begins in verse 17. He says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. And, and by the way, as, I, as I've been studying um, Acts over the past probably year and a half or so in preparation for this for this sermon series, I'm always struck by oftentimes we see it. We saw it in Pentecost. I didn't mention it then, but we see it here that, that, that when they address you as brothers, that's like the apostles are really coming down to it. Like if you look back in, in Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2 and verse um, 14, <clears throat> he addressed the crowd as men of Judea and then all who live in Jerusalem, just kind of mess, uh, just addressing everybody. And then in verse 22, he says, men of Israel, hear these words. I'm going to tell you about Jesus. But now he's getting to the point where he says, brothers, in verse 29. And it's the same idea here. He says in verse 17, and now brothers. He's coming to that point where he's, he's passionately going to plea with them about what they need to do. And you're going to see that in Pisidian Antioch in Acts chapter 13. A similar thing. He's going to just talk about all the, the men who are there. And then he's going to get to a point Paul is going to where he says, brothers. And this is, a, this is really a passionate plea. He says, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Like, when you guys were, were calling for his crucifixion there in the, in the crowds, I, I know you were ignorant. You didn't understand who Jesus was. You, you, you didn't understand that he was the Messiah. He was the Holy Righteous One. He was the, the servant that God had, had sent. The, the servant, as he's identified in verse 13, as he's identified later in verse uh, 26. He's the servant of God come, and you didn't know that. You didn't understand. You acted in ignorance just as your rulers did. But if you truly would have known, I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt here, if you truly would have known, you have not have crucified him. <clears throat> in fact, that sentiment is repeated by Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And that's what he's saying. He said, your rulers didn't understand what's going on. The chief priests and rulers, they didn't know. Uh, and the, even the political rulers, Pilate, didn't know what was going on. They, they didn't understand the prophets. If they had, they wouldn't have, have crucified Jesus. And they didn't understand the prophets. Acts chapter 3, verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. If they truly understood all the prophets and the message that the Christ was going to suffer they would not have crucified him. They would have understood. But the, the, the prophets predicted this, and they knew about that. You know, and my time is short today. There's no way I'm going to get through all the, the, the rest of the sermon, by the way. Kids, you can just go, okay, it's going to end appropriately. This will be part one. Peter preaching the portico, part one. We'll preach part two next week. But I want to, next week, we'll, we'll take verse 18 and really just show what that is. Of all the prophets, uh, foretelling that his Christ would suffer, because that, that really happened. 
And these prophecies came true. They came true in the fact that you all enacted the truth of the prophets. So you delivered him over, you denied him, and you killed the author of life. But the only way out is found in verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And there is where this message and the message at Pentecost have, have strong parallels. Because when, when Peter was preaching to his listeners and his listeners realized that, oh, they're the very ones, right? Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him Lord in Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And that pierced them to the heart. They said, what should we do? And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. When his listeners realized that they had rejected the Messiah, he said, repent. And the forgiveness of sins is right there. And and, and this even here in chapter 3, verse 19, this repentance comes with a promise, as it did on Pentecost, the promise of forgiveness that your sins may be blotted out. And just parenthetically, note it doesn't speak about baptism. You have to be baptized here to to have your sins forgiven. He just says, you just need to repent. You need to turn. This is grace. To turn to him that your sins may be blotted out. Just like he spoke about forgiveness of sins in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. And then verse 21 and and 22, then he speaks about the blessing of Jesus coming. Um, He's got to be in heaven now. But there will be a time when he's going to come and restore all things which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Um, and I think that's a good place, really, to end today. I have a couple more P points, but you have to wait for those next week if you're going to come. Um, so I preach Peter preaching in the portico. But really, this, this causes us, really, as we end with this message of repentance, and really the call for all of us to say that where, where are we in our hearts? Like, do we need to repent of where we are? Are, are we trusting in Jesus? Or are we killing him every day? Are we trusting him? I just call you just in light of these people. Like we don't know the exact response from here, but we see pretty soon afterwards in chapter 4 and verse 4 that, that many of those who heard the word believed and the number of men came to be about 5,000. So another big revival from this message. And if you haven't believed and trust in Christ, right, believe and trust in him today. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the sermon that uh, Peter preached in, in the portico. And uh, just the, the clear call of uh, conviction of, of sin, of what they had done, and the clear call for us to walk then in righteousness, to turn and repent. I pray, Father, for your, your mercy upon us. God, that you'd help us to see our sins, help us to see the ways in which we, we grieve Christ and understand our peril apart from, from Jesus. But know that there is a promise of a blessing as this sermon ends. God, knowing that you, having raised up your servant, sent him to bless us. So we thank you for sending of Jesus. And, and though he went through these terrible, horrible, difficult things, and though he was abused, he was like a lamb before the slaughter, like a sheep that was sat before his shears, he did not open his mouth. And yet it was him that he bore our sins in his body on the cross. And in that we can rejoice. I pray that we would be found as a church trusting in that and rejoicing in him. Father, thank you for the fact that we can gather, the fact that we are here today. I just would pray your, your kindness upon us through the rest of, of the day. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.